This is a Federal News Network podcast. You can hardly swing a cat these days and not hit somebody talking about the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program. That's the Defense Department's strategy for buttoning up the defense industrial base. My next guest says the CMMC approach is good in theory, but lacks anywhere near the resources it needs to get it done. He's not only Director of Information Security at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, but also a founding member of the CMMC accreditation body. Chris Golden joins me now. Mr. Golden, good to have you on. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. And you've written a white paper detailing some of what you feel are the shortcomings of the CMMC program. And let's talk about that resourcing, especially with the fact that even minimally to get every company just on the defense side accredited in their CMMC and having the controls in place, it would take 5,000 third-party assessors. There's nowhere near that number. And uh, we go from there. Tell us your thinking there. Yeah, so when I was with the accreditation body, uh, I created and uh, trained all the provisional assessors that are out in the ecosystem right now, and, and there's about 100 of them or so. And we also trained a number of folks from DCMA's DIBCAP area that does assessments for 171 currently. So they're going to do some CMMC level three assessments. I actually saw in the news lately that they finally completed their first one on a C3PAO. So the first C3PO has completed their CMMC level three assessment. Just to find some of those acronyms. Sorry, yeah. DCMA is the Defense Contract Management Agency. Uh, so they're the ones that actually make sure people that have contracts are sort of doing what they're supposed to do. And DIBCAP is the Defense Industrial Base Cybersecurity Assessment Center is what the acronym stands for. And again, they normally go out and do a NIST 171 assessment of a company to make sure they're following that clause in their contract. And this is the first CMMC assessment, even though very, very close, uh, subtly different between those two things. But they did the first C3PAO because that's a C3PAO requirement to have a level three assessment done before they can go out and start doing their own assessments on the DIB. Yeah, you almost need a whiteboard to keep track of all of the elements (laughs) of the CMMC program. Multiple Venn diagrams. Right, yes. So still after two and a half years or so, just the first few assessments are starting to trickle out. So what about the scaling needed? There's, I think you write that there's a good 300, 350,000 entities that would need to be accredited here. The plan was that DOD would release only a few pilot contracts, and we've certainly seen a number of fits and starts from the DOD as to which ones they want to do and when they want to start, et cetera. And so when we use that number of pilot contracts and we sort of did some back of the napkin math, uh, how many people would be bidding on these contracts, how many subs would be involved, uh, we came up with a number of about 500 assessments between sort of when the contract was RFI'd and when the contract was awarded that would need to be completed. That's where the 100 assessors came from. It was to do just that 500 assessments. But yeah, over time, we're certainly going to have to scale to you know over 5,000 probably assessors in the ecosystem to do more than 100,000 of these assessments per year, because right now the assessment is going to be good for once every three years. So again, back of the napkin math, you're doing about 100, 120,000 assessments per year. So we thought the 5,000 number would be a number that would be in that range to do that, especially if you consider that probably the vast majority of companies in the defense industrial base will only ever be CMMC level one. It's going to be a much smaller percentage that will be CMMC level three, which is going to take more people uh, and more time to do a level three. But frankly, a level one, an individual assessor, about a day probably on average, you know, okay, when we start doing that math, we come up with the 5,000 number that we need to sort of handle the ecosystem. And then there's also hints that the CMMC program could spread to the civilian agencies and therefore some unknown number of additional or marginal numbers of companies added into the mix. So then you've got more scaling issues. 
Yeah, you've already seen Department of Homeland Security and the General Services Administration, GSA, put in what I would call contingency CMMC clauses in their contracts. They basically say, hey, we may change this contract to include a CMMC requirement. Uh, We'll let you know after you sign it kind of thing. So these other government agencies are leaning in that direction. I think it's probably going to be pretty obvious that most of them will go there and eventually it'll be a whole of government approach. And then I think you'll start seeing it go to people that don't do any contracting with the government, right? You know, once the regulators start looking at it and going, hey, in healthcare, let's say that's the area I work in, maybe a regular says, well, maybe I'll take a SOC 2 type 2 uh, audit this year, but next year, maybe this CMMC thing is what I really need. Maybe that's a better approach to managing risk. And so once you see that happen, you'll see sort of, you know, it grow and balloon. And then we haven't even talked internationally uh, as our international partners, you know, who do participate in the supply chain and will have to be CMMC assessed, but how do they fit into this sort of big puzzle as it sort it goes global. So yeah, there's a potential here for a huge ballooning of this thing. We're speaking with Chris Golden, Director of Information Security at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey, and a founding member of the CMMC accreditation body. And the other point, or one of the other big points in your white paper, is that for small companies, this is expensive, and they may not have the resources, even if they can get to the point of getting that level one. You've got to keep up with this stuff, because it's a fast-moving target, keeping up with cybersecurity threats. And so you're suggesting some sort of possible shared service offered by the government where these companies could simply shift their IT resources to be in a safe zone. Tell us more about that idea. Yeah, I'm not sure it's going to be offered by the government, but it's certainly going to be heavily partnered with the government. And so, yeah, so as we're building the system out, trying to figure out, A, how do you make this cost effective for the small business, right? So if you've got three or four people in a garage with a dog and they're providing, you know, whatever service it is to the OD, how, how do you make it easy for them to, A, not only be compliant, but B, also what you, or B, what you said, you know, how do you maintain that compliance, right? You know, over time in that three-year window where nobody's looking at you. And there wasn't a great answer. And so a lot of these companies have zero IT staff, right? They don't have a single person that is responsible for IT. They have zero security staff. And they frankly don't want to do that. They want to focus on their business, whatever their, their core businesses, they want to focus on that. They do not want to worry uh, about, you know, all this kind of stuff. So the thought was that you create an environment that is shared amongst all the DIB, you know, the defense industrial base that is partnered highly with the government. So we're getting decent threat intelligence from them to be able to modify things. And now it's sort of a one-stop shop where you can just say, hey, I want you to either A, store my sensitive data so I don't have to worry about it because I'm not capable probably of storing it correctly. Or B, you know, hey, can you take care of all my IT infrastructure stuff because I don't want to do it and I have no idea how to do it. And there's a pendulum there that will swing across that spectrum and, and a lot of different things will fall in between. But that's sort of the two, you know, ends of the, the bookends there that will allow companies to be compliant with CMMC and still stay and do what they want to do without it being super cost effective. And so you're talking about basically a cloud instance where you sign up for like a subscription fee and we have no idea, you know, what that's going to be, but it's not going to be onerous. It's not going to be, you know, ending to the business line basically. Uh, and, and then we do the rest, right? We just take over. We'll make sure everything's CMMC level three, four or five compliant over time. We'll make sure you're, you're getting the data you want and it's, it's safe and secure. And all those kind of things are now taken for you done, you know, as sort of a service. Uh, and we can enable all these small businesses to stay within the defense industrial base, because obviously we don't want a lot of them leaving the defense industrial base. That changes the security risk equation significantly when you have a significant movement away from these companies sure. that just say, 
hey, it's it's too expensive. I can't participate in the ecosystem anymore. I'm going to go do contracting for you know hospitals or something instead because I can make money there. I can't make money with DOD. And so when you wrap all that stuff together, this was the best way we thought to do it. And, and leveraging you know sort of a one-stop shop, you can really lock this stuff down, right? All the cybersecurity stuff I do, all the new stuff coming out. Let's talk about quantum, you know, holographic memory, uh, all that kind of stuff. You can machine learning, artificial intelligence. You can really leverage all that stuff almost in real time to get the best thing for right now, where if you tried to roll it out to 350,000 companies, it would take years just to do an incremental change. So that's why we thought it was a good idea. I would think, too, that if I'm a ransomware hacker, what I would do is target companies that, say, just got their certification under CMMC, wait a couple of months, and knowing that the searchlight won't come around for three years, that's the time to hit them. I think our adversaries, you know, the DOD estimates that we're losing about $600 billion, and that's with a B, dollars of intellectual property uh, a year to our adversaries through the supply chain. And so they're not going to just roll over. You know, I would certainly expect some kind of discreditation to occur. You know, once a company achieves their CMMC level three certification, the bad guys are going to specifically target them to show, hey, it doesn't work, right? Uh, even though it is much more onerous for them to break in now. And, and if they want to break in, they're going to break in. I mean, that's just the nature of cybersecurity. There's no such thing as perfect cybersecurity, just like there's no such thing as zero risk, uh, you know, and, and to show, hey, you know, put it on the dark web. Hey, we broke into this company and here's all their stuff, uh, even though they're CMMC level three. So it doesn't work. And in, in an attempt to discredit the program, because the level of effort to break in that company was monumentally higher than it used to be. And they don't want to do that, right? They don't want to invest that level of resource to break in to these companies. And so we make it harder across the board. Well, they absolutely will want to discredit that. So I anticipate that happening. And what's your best assessment, not uh, to use a pun, for where CMMC will be a year from now, do you think, in reality? Well, it really depends on the DOD. Uh, you know, right now there's a 30-day review that's a couple 30 days late uh, as to how the program's going. Uh, as the new administration came in, obviously there were questions and thoughts on possible new directions. I have not been intimately involved with those, so I really can't tell you sort of where it's going. I'm sort of waiting with everybody else to see what the report says, but there could be a lot of changes coming. You know, will they cancel the contract and then go sort of pick an accreditation body that's a little bit more mature and capable of handling this? It could be, don't know. You know, could they modify the contract to do different things? to maybe take training away from the accreditation body and just sort of do the ISO kind of standard. Yeah, that's certainly a possibility as well. But again, I don't know. Uh, so I, I'm not sure where it is. I'd like to think about a year from now, we're probably doing in the, the world of you know 50,000 assessments a year or something like that uh, as we begin the scaling process. So we go from about 500 to, to 50,000. We've got you know another 500 or so assessors on the street, uh, certified and trained, ready to go. And you know the program is off and running. But I really don't know, again, sort of how those conversations are going since I came off the board in, in February. Chris Golden is Director of Information Security at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey and a founding member of the CMMC accreditation body. Thanks so much for joining me. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to his white paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. 
Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, And the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce, 
uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. 
So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.